take your Bibles, please, and turn to Colossians chapter 2, 984-ish, I think. Uh, it's been three days since I looked that up, so I could be wrong, but I think it's in the 984 region of your pew Bible. We've been in Colossians a little bit off and on for the last uh, couple of months. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 7, and uh, Paul was exhorting, warning, I guess, uh, the Colossian church to, to walk in Christ. You have a new life in Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, he told them then to walk in Christ, to be rooted up, to be established, to abound in thanksgiving. Now, as we begin in verse 8 uh, and through the remainder of the chapters, what we'll look at uh, today, as you're walking, as you're being built up, as you're abounding in thanksgiving, beware, says Paul. It's not just going to be easy. It's not going to be this simple and easy walk that you have. There's going to be things that are going to trip you up. Uh, and he's going to mention uh, some of those as we go along. Let me begin in verse 8. I'm just going to read to verse 15. Uh, we will study the remainder of the chapter, but I'm, uh, I'm just going to read to verse 15 for now. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would be with us now as we hear from your word. Holy Spirit, would you fill this place? Would you fill our hearts? Would you give us understanding? Would you convict us of our sins? Would you encourage us with the gospel? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think I've used this illustration with you before, uh, but I believe it bears repeating because it really exposes, I think, the main issue in this passage. Uh, once upon a time, there was this king, and this king ruled over his land. He was a very good king. He was very loved by his people. And so this gardener brought this king an enormous carrot as a gift. He just wanted his king to have it. And he said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot that I have ever grown, and I believe that I will ever grow. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched. He discerned the man's heart that it was a true and genuine gift. And as the gardener was about to leave, he said, wait a minute. Clearly, you're a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land as a gift, and you can garden all of it. Here you go, for nothing. The gardener was amazed and delighted. He went home rejoicing at this new plot of land that he had. Now, there was a nobleman who overheard this conversation. And he said, well, my goodness, if that's what you get for a carrot, imagine if you gave the king something really significant and even better than that. So the next day, the nobleman came before the king. He was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and I believe this is the best horse that I've ever bred. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned this man's heart, and he came to a different conclusion. Thank you, the king said, and he dismissed the man. 
The man walked away confused, a, a little bit saddened. And so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were really giving yourself the horse. We come to an issue in this passage, an issue of legalism. Why are you giving your obedience to God? Are you giving it to him because you really love him? And you're so thankful for everything that he's done for you. Are you really giving your obedience to yourself because you think it's going to be translated into earthly blessing or you think that your goodness actually achieves for yourself salvation? Your love, your devotion, your praise to God, is it for him or is it really for you? In Christianity, we often talk about legalism, as I mentioned. Legalism can be defined in several ways. Let me just give you two. Legalism is where a person attempts to keep the law in order to attain salvation. You've probably heard it described that way. We, we recognize that, Lord willing, and we see that that's not right. We're not saved by the things that we do. We're saved completely by the grace of God. But here's one that I imagine that some of us struggle with. The second is where a person keeps the law in order to maintain their salvation. They know that they're saved by grace, but they think to themselves, I've got to maintain, I've got to stay on the right course so that God will continue to love me. It's a maintenance thing. Do you struggle with that? Why do we struggle with that? Martin Luther called legalism the default notion of the human heart. You know what a default is. If you're typing along and you want to press the number three, and if you do that on your computer screen, the number three will pop up. But if you press the shift key and then the number three, then the number sign pops up or, or a hashtag. If you don't know what a hashtag is, ask a young person and they'll fill you in. It's the default of the human heart. It's what we just kind of, unless we're intentional about it, it's what we go to. We want and we think we can earn our salvation by the things that we do. Because in the end, we really want to be our own savior. We want to point to the things that we have done or kept ourselves from doing to think that makes us lovable and worthy and acceptable. These Colossian false teachers were telling the Colossian church that they needed to be legalists. They, they weren't in the church, they were, but they were impacting the people of this Colossian church. They taught that there was an extra experience, there was extra knowledge, there was extra deeds. This, Christ was great and they needed him, but there was other extra stuff that they needed to do in order to really be saved. But we know that all that we need is found in Christ. We must not think that we need to add anything to his finished work or our continued right standing with him. Nothing that justifies us and add nothing to, that, that continues to sanctify us and one day glorify us. We can't add anything to what he has done. So I want to look at this passage in its full, four sections but two ways. There's the way of religion and then there's the way of the gospel. There's the way of legalism and then there's the way of, way of grace. So number one, this way of religion. It's clear from the book up to this point that Paul is deeply concerned for these Colossian Christians. He loves them very much. That's why he continues to warn them of what's going to happen if they fall into this false teaching. As I mentioned at the very beginning, he's saying, as you're walking in Christ, this Christian life, okay, it's not going to be perfect. Beware of all these things that, are going to, uh, that you're going to be tempted to follow. The way of religion says... But when I follow the commands of God, I achieve something for myself before God. Okay? That my obedience makes me acceptable. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you're acceptable in Christ, therefore you obey him and do the things that he's asked of you. 
It's a completely different way of thinking. It doesn't make you acceptable. You're already acceptable through Christ if you have faith in him. Now you walk in him. These false teachers were pulling a little bit from Christianity. They were pulling a little from Gnosticism that says you need to have this deeper knowledge. Pulling a little bit from Judaism saying that you still need to observe these rituals and these feasts and these ceremonies. And they were smashing them together and saying, this is what, this is what your religion ought to be about. Pulling a little bit from everywhere. Believe in Christ, that's fine, but also there's other things. Don't we try to do this? Maybe we don't talk about it in terms of of circumcision or feast and rituals, that seems very odd and foreign to us, but we do the same thing. We're not satisfied with just how God has revealed himself to us. We've talked in the last few weeks about the ordinary means of grace, the word sacrament and prayer. We know they're important, but we think that there's more that we need to add to it. You know, something that's it's really difficult for us to see legalism and works righteousness in our own heart, but it's really abundantly clear when you see it in somebody else. <laughs> Isn't that how sin works? You can see somebody else's sin, but it's really hard to see your own. Take the charismatic or Pentecostal movement. What is their legalism that you see? Well, they believe that you can be a Christian, but in order to be a really good and legitimate Christian, you need to have this gift of speaking in tongues, this, this second blessing, as they call it. it. There's more that you need to add to what Christ has done. Or maybe the Catholic Church. Yes, you're saved by grace. Your original sin is dealt with by grace. But in order to stay in God's good graces, you need to do confession and penance and works and all this. That keeps you right before him. When we see it exposed this way, well, it it totally makes sense to us. Yes, I see that that's wrong. But what is our works righteousness? What is it for you? For, For most of us, it's a question that only you can answer. But what is it sometimes for us PCA folk? It's our doctrine and our theology. We get very haughty and arrogant about the things that we believe. Is our theology important? It's extremely important. What we believe and and, and how strictly we hold ourselves to Scripture is very important. But that in and of itself does not save you and me. That's not what's... The fact that I understand TULIP and I know that Calvin's three uses of the law, that's not what is going to make me acceptable before God and that I might go into the kingdom of heaven. It's all because of Christ and all that what he has done. The way of religion tells me I've got to earn it, I've got to fight for it, I've got to compare myself to other people, and as long as I'm doing better than them, then I should feel good about myself. The gospel says no. Trust in Jesus because he's done everything for you. So one was the way of religion. Number two, the way of the gospel. The way of religion seeks to justify oneself by what we do. The way of the gospel says, you are united with Christ. All of his record, all of the things that he's done is now true of you. John Murray says that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Once we understand that we're united with him, everything else for for salvation, for righteousness, for holiness, for godly living, it all begins to make sense once we realize that we're in him. So Paul says emphatically, In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's speaking against these false teachers who said that that wasn't true. He said it is true. Everything we need is in him. Nothing outside of him is necessary for our salvation and for our life in Christ. You see, the way of religion is constantly adding. It's adding requirements. It's adding expectations. Because it thinks it's supplying for a deficiency that Christ cannot give us. 
but Christ is not deficient in any way. Legalism, really, when we do this, we're charging Christ with an imperfection. We're saying, you aren't enough, you haven't done enough for me, so I've got to do more to add to what you have already done. Every time we think that because I don't do this, I don't keep myself from this sin, or I do all these good things, that that's making me acceptable, we're saying Christ hasn't done enough. Of course God wants your obedience. But the point is that your obedience isn't moving the needle of his love for you one bit. He loves you completely because of Jesus, not because of you. You're completely worthy and acceptable because of him, not the things that you continue to do. But you do those things out of gratitude, the abounding in thanksgiving, as he mentions in the previous section. We are perfect in Christ. Surely you can't add anything to that. So it means we have forgiveness, we have redemption. It ought to give us joy and assurance. These next two verses, verses 11 and 12, we see the false teachers showing the Jewish side of their teaching. They're promising power over the flesh, but we already have power over the flesh in Christ. For the Old Testament believer, physical circumcision was extremely important. Paul is saying that you already, Colossian Christians, you already have the circumcision that's what's necessary, the circumcision of the heart. That which physical circumcision pointed to, you have it, you have the reality within you already. The sign doesn't change the person. It's the heart that needed to change. So Paul turns to baptism, what the new covenant sign is. Paul says you have been circumcised in your hearts, you've put off this body of flesh, you also have now been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him, all because of what he's done. If you have embraced Christ by faith and been baptized, then all the benefits of Jesus are yours. All of them are yours. I was not so fortunate to have one of these in college, but many of my friends did. It was a credit card. They didn't have my name on it, but it had Daddy's name on it. I had a lot of friends who had these. Uh, one, one friend named Nick, he had this credit card, and everywhere he went, it would just swipe it, just swipe it which was great because he got all the benefits of being his dad, Jim, but Jim got the bill. He didn't get the bill. What a wonderful thing. I actually took advantage of that a few times in college, but that's a whole other story. He didn't get the bill. His dad got the bill. He had all the benefits of being his dad, Jim, but he wasn't. All the debt, all the bad stuff went to his father. It's what we are in Christ. We get all the benefits of being Christ, but we didn't pay the debt. We didn't pay the penalty. We didn't do any of that. But we received the benefits. And we have a new, a new worth, a new value, all because of Christ. Paul is continually driving this point home. Everywhere you go, it's telling you that Jesus isn't enough, or that he's important, but just not that important. Paul's saying he's everything for you, and you've got to believe that. The way of the gospel is first to understand all that Christ has done and to know that that's true of you, too. It's true of you. But the way of religion doesn't end. Verses 16 through 19 shows us the way of religion again. Let me read those verses. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regards of food and drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on to detail about visions, puffed up without reason, by his sensual, sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Because of all that Christ has done, we don't need any of this anymore. So don't let anybody pass judgment on you, says Paul, if you aren't observing these things. Because they aren't of any value anymore. Okay? Don't let anyone judge you if you don't do them, because it's not of value. These Old Testament feasts and, and ceremonies and, and the old Sabbath day, it, 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 it's of no value to you, Colossian Christians. Don't let anyone make you feel bad if you're not doing these things. And so Paul summarizes in verse 19 that all of this, even these very things, you're, the, the false teachers were treating them as an end. Do this stuff makes God loves you more. No, it never was meant to do that anyway. It was meant to point to something, namely Christ. You see, the way of religion yearns for control. It wants to be in charge. It wants to leave nothing up to chance. But in this yearning, we're really desiring to, play, to replace God with ourselves. We have done it all. Some of you out there have very controlling personalities. We call you A-types. Okay? Were it up to you, you'd plan out every moment of your life. Maybe you've even tried to do that. Many of us Christians, A-type or not, we, we do trust in Christ, we love him and praise him for all he's done, but we struggle with this. Because the default yearning of your heart is that you want to be in control and you want to say, I've done enough, I am valuable, I am worthy. We want to say that. It's a yearning that we have, that we would be acceptable, me, myself, of nobody else, what I've done, who I am, is worthy before God. Paul just says flat out, you're just not. You're not because you're so sinful. What begins is a simple trusting in Christ. And I know I, I trust him, but let's add a little bit more. Over time, you completely trust in yourself and you don't trust in God at all. What you really want to do is put God in your debt and you're not obeying out of grateful thanksgiving. I'm not saying that obedience to God's word is unnecessary. And I'm not saying you may... Accept Christ and now live however you want to. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm asking you to assess your own heart. Why do you obey? Why do you follow God? Do you love him? Is it grateful obedience? Are you trying to put him in your debt, saying, but look what I've done. You owe me now. Paul says don't do that. Why do we do this? Because we don't want to submit. We want to hedge our bets and Paul says it's all about Christ and what he's done. The way of religion says that Christ is not sufficient and all-powerful, but the way of the gospel says he is, and you can trust him. Finally, the way of the gospel in verses 20 through 23. Paul asks an obvious question. <laughs> Why do you want to live like this? Why do you want to keep living the way the Old Testament believers did? You, you're freed from all this. This, this is bondage. These, these are shackles that have been put upon you. Don't live this way anymore. You don't have to. You've been freed from this in Christ. And Paul is imploring the Colossians, don't turn from him to a man-made religion. You're just being led astray. It isn't just this harmless addition. It's condemnation. It's totally wrong. It's praising yourself rather than him. The religion of legalism leaves us condemned. It promises security and assurance, but all it delivers is burdens and uncertainty. But think of it this way. If it is true that what Christ has done is necessary, but you must add your works to that, 
then all we really have is Christ on a cross who theoretically died for your sins, who theoretically died for his people. Because it would mean that that was necessary, but what was also necessary were your works. So it could have meant that he died for absolutely nobody, if it means that you must also add your goodness to it. What's true is he died and completely did everything, period. He died for your justification so that you would have faith in him. He died that you will persevere into the end and be glorified. Not maybe, there's not a percentage to, uh, uh, you know, anything less than it absolutely will happen. The atonement, it did everything for you. Not just a theoretical, it did. It absolutely satisfied everything. Paul really strikes a decisive blow at the end of this passage in verse 23. He says, this legalism... It has the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This way of religion appears to be wise, but it's deceiving. It's of no value. It's really foolishness. Yesterday was Halloween, as you know. Today begins, you know, Thanksgiving's really the forgotten holiday, so we really, we, we jump into Christmas now. You're going to see Christmas uh, stuff up. Pat, maybe you've even decorated your house in Christmas stuff. Christmas is a wonderful time of year, but really Christmas is the season of missing the point, isn't it? It's a constant missing of the point. Yes, our culture has turned into commerce and materialism and focusing on trimming your Christmas tree, which aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. But are you missing the point with Christmas? Maybe you haven't even thought about it. Oh, yeah, I forgot Christmas is coming in, in two months. At Christmas time, we are constantly missing the point of what it really is that Christ came into this world to live perfectly for you and me, to do everything that this law required on our behalf. And if we're in him, then that's our perfect record too. Don't miss the point this season. Don't be concentrated on the Hallmark Christmas movies that you can't wait to watch or all the gifts that you need to buy for your family. Concentrate on Christ. Don't miss those things. He died on the cross for you so that you wouldn't have to worry about keeping all these laws and these ceremonies and everything else. They aren't the point. And those Old Testament sacrifices were never meant to be the point anyway. They were meant to point us past themselves to something better, to something greater, to a Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you missing the point in your obedience? It's meant to draw you closer to Him, but it's meant to, Lord, thank you for all that you've done for me. Of course I would give my life to you for all that you've done. We're about to come to the Lord's table. This table in and of itself does not have any value to it. It has value because of Christ. These elements are just normal elements, but we pray to set them aside, that the Lord would use them, that we would grow in grace, that they would nourish us, and that we would remember, would be reminded of all that he's done, that we are sinful, but he's a wonderful Savior. To the Christian this morning, don't be led astray by legalism. All that you need is found in Christ. To the non-Christian, we don't believe that we're perfect. In fact, we're quite certain that we're not perfect. But we believe that we have a perfect record because of what Jesus did for us. That's why we can boast in him. That's why we can live joyful lives. Legalism is dangerous to our hearts. It says that we have value in what we have done. The gospel says that you don't but you're perfect because of Jesus. Let us praise him for that, and let us prepare ourselves now as we come to the table. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we confess to you that often we, we have very haughty and prideful spirits. We want to trust in ourselves. We often don't want to trust in you. Lord, trusting in ourselves leads to condemnation. It leads to frustration. It leads to exhaustion. You ask us to come and lay our burdens at your feet, and you will take them, and you will give us your perfect righteousness. Lord, that we would do that. Thank you so much that you offer yourself to us. Would you focus our minds and hearts now as we come to the table, that we're reminded of our sinfulness here, but also the great sacrifice that you paid on our behalf. Lord, that we would examine ourselves, that we would come to this table in faith, and that you'd be with us now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our hymn of preparation?